This is the Championship Club Podcast, the show that shines a light on English rugby's second flight. Join us every fortnight and check us out on the socials at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Gully, welcome back. Uh, good to see you again. I, I'm glad you could be here because uh, it's, been, it's, it's been an evening for you, hasn't it? Uh, how are things? How's Georgie? Like, like What's going on? <laughs> yeah, mate. So last night, uh, if people may or may not know that Georgie's pregnant with twins and Last night, um, so I, shit, it was like, I think George's uh, waters may have broken. <laughs> so we went up to the hospital. Uh, she's all good, all healthy. Uh, she's currently in hospital and obviously had the podcast today, looking forward to it for a little while. And um, George was like, yeah, just fucking crack on, go and do it. And then we'll see you in hospital later on. So here we are, excited to, to bring a special guest in. <laughs> I'm glad that you've got that approval and that sign off to come and do the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she's pretty good like that, mate. And uh, it's just, it's, it's actually, it's quite nice of her. But um, yeah, so I'll be, I'll be shooting straight off after this to go and check she's okay. But um, she'll be in hospital for a few days, and then we may be having twins on the way shortly. Oh, mate, it's such, such exciting news, and uh, uh, I, I'm delighted for you. Um, and then I, I guess the other sort of not quite so uh, big news, but very, very exciting in terms of the show. We are, we are joined today by uh, one of your old mates. Obviously, uh, Scotland international and fame at Leicester, Gloucester, Edinburgh, Montpellier, and also now uh, making waves in the rugby podcast scene as host of the Rugby Pod, um, Jim Hamilton. Welcome to welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. I am a listener. I've listened to a few in the past, genuinely. Uh, so it's great to be here with my former partner in crime, Ben Gulliver, uh, soon to be father of twins, which I am myself, and. All the smiles we've got at the minute, Gully, obviously we hope it goes well, but they will soon subside. I'm telling you, mate, as you get into the weeks and months of the honeymoon period of the twins being born, it is absolute carnage is all I'm telling you. So good luck. And yeah. I, uh, Mike's thoughts as well, but I hope it goes well for you over the next uh, few days and hours and weeks because it's traumatic for our beautiful ladies. And uh, I do joke, but it's an amazing thing to, to have kids and obviously have twins as well. Yeah, cheers, mate. It's uh, yeah, it's exciting. Um, but we're here for the pod. We're here to talk a bit about Champ Rugby and a bit about our relationship. Uh, so I, th- I know we, I dropped onto your pod. I think it was January time. So I think we sort of look, uh, trying to remember the first time we met, played together. Can you can you remember that? Of course I can. Of course I can. <laughs> you were the man. And also, do you genuinely listen to the pod? Because I think you're bullshitting us there. <laughs> <laughs> I think I listened to the um I listened to one I can't remember who it was with but I listened to the Alex Ray one as well I listened to that all the way through because he's a fellow Kovskin isn't he and he was a player as well actually who was like one of the best players who I saw coming through the system so and obviously did a bit of research for our podcast that will be out soon which I think will go down really well but yeah of course mate it's uh it's I, I think it's a, a story that needs to be told around the championship and no one's doing it apart from you guys and I know that we've spoken off air uh, gully about it that a lot of the lads will naturally speak highly about it and we'll probably get into the crux of it about how um there are a few challenges and there's a few glaringly obvious ones but my going back to your question my relationship with you <clears throat> actually goes back further than knowing you and it was your dad because I was just, um I lived in the uh in the Northern Hebrides, capital city of Coventry, growing <laughs> up. And that was the club that, as we know, that your dad was an absolute legend at. So I was ball boy when I was a young lad. Um, basically, yeah, I was a ball boy at golf, fighting for me, uh, fighting for me lunch. And your dad was the absolute legend 
there. No, I didn't realise you were ball boy. I was ball boy at Cov for years as well. So we must have just missed missed paths, or they pinned me off by then. <laughs> no, I think you were better ball boy than me. So I couldn't even I couldn't even catch the ball when it when it came off. But um, yeah, so I've got a long kind of standing relationship with the Gulliver family. As Gully mentioned, he don't remember me. I don't remember him as a kid, but I remember his dad. And then I got into rugby a little bit later at 15 or 16, went to Barker Butts and like, yeah, like Gully, we've spoken about it before. Like you were one of the top players in the team. I was six foot eight, six foot nine with heels and, you know, so uncoordinated. But, you know, guys like Gully and uh, the lads at Barker Butts at the time, kind of salt of the earth, you know, working class team, hard as absolute nails, kind of took me under their wing. And that, that was my first relationship with rugby it was my first relationship of being involved in a team you know and without getting too deep into the crux of kind of my backstory it was the first time I felt a sense of belonging and Barker Butts and my former coach at um, Camden Court the late Callum McClark were you know memories that I look back I look back fondly but I try not to go back because it was a tough time in my life in terms of you know that that part of it and golly we spoke about it on our yeah. Uh, podcast that we did together you know I was in a kind of tough place with family and you know didn't have much going for me but I, when I do look back on it um, obviously Gully, I, I think about it with fond memories you know yourself and your dad and, and some of the other people that were involved in the club were just absolute legends. Yeah it's um, it's interesting listening to you talk about that time because you, you don't realise do you, what people are going through um, and it's and rugby, I mean, I've worked a lot with kids of, from various backgrounds and it, it offers that team, teamwork, respect, all of that sort of thing, the, the core values of rugby. And then it sort of set you off on a journey. So if we go back to that stage, where, when did it start to change for you, mate? Like, like we, don't, we won't go f- fully through your career, but it's just like, like as, you know, an under 15, 16 at Barker's and then... The next thing I'm looking at, you're playing for Leicester. You know, like there's a there's a piece there that probably not many people understand or know know what actually what happened at that point. Oh, mate, it, it's crazy. Like, and as you know as well, and again, I keep reverting back to the stuff that we spoke about. But you opening up to me about watching my career when where it went. If you asked anyone, and we can speak frankly on here, people would be pissing themselves laughing. If at that point you said. Jim Hamilton, or Jimmy Hamilton, as I was called back then, was going to go on to play and have the career that I had and, and play for Scotland 63 times and play in World Cups and 10 Six Nations and win Heineken Cups and Premierships. They would literally say, you've got more chance of winning the lottery five times over. I genuinely think that they would have been the odds there. But, you know, I had something at the age of 15 and 16 that 99% of people playing didn't have, and that was size, right? And that was in a time in which you had to be big, physical. The game was very different. And as we know, we lived on the doorstep of one of the greatest clubs ever in Leicester Tigers. And they looked at Coventry as historically a place in which they poached players. And Gully, as we know, I played a little bit for the Colts. Speaking frankly, I would have been one of the worst players in the team. I I was, that's a fact. Couldn't catch, couldn't pass, couldn't really tackle. But I did enjoy the rough stuff. That was kind of my background of growing up on the streets of Coventry, which was the case. Uh, and I was tough. You know, I was resilient in that way. I was tough. Like I had to be. And I latched onto the opportunity of rugby because I had nothing else. You know, I had nothing else. So it wasn't if, oh, you know, if rugby doesn't work out or, you know, I don't make it with these lads or, don't, you know, I don't play at the weekend. 
well, I had nothing else. So this that was it. This was the opportunity that I got, but never to play professionally. And then I remember I was playing for Warwickshire. Again, one of the worst players in the team. And I think if you went through the archives, you don't have to. But I have done, I was getting graded three and fours out of ten. Uh, there was loads of lads in our team at, uh, at Barkerbots at the time. David Medcraft, who was a hybrid player, he could play in every position. He was phenomenal. Lawrence Reedy, uh, Simon Morris. You know, there's a big list of players that were unbelievable. We played against Leicestershire and a big fight kicked off in the game. And I thought, well, here we go. Let's drop the drop the bags, drop the gloves and started swinging. And that game against Leicestershire, they were one of the best teams um, yeah, uh, at the time. Obviously, it's Leicestershire, it's Leicester. And the scouts were there. Uh, Dusty Hare, who was the great British and Irish line, England, Leicester fullback. He was a scout. Uh, and one of the other Leicester Tigers Academy scouts was there. And they got in contact with the club. I was working behind the bar. Uh, they rang the club like it's uh, Dusty Hare. I'm like, is this a, a joke? Like, who has a name like that for one? And like, <laughs> I've got no idea who you are. And they invited me for a trial. And I was like, well, this is, I had no idea. You know, I didn't know anything about rugby. I didn't know who Martin Johnson or Dean Richards was at this time. I didn't I followed football. Uh, ended up going, and to cut a long story short, it was just everything I could have hoped for. You know, Dean Richards, like, took me under his wing. He saw something in me, uh, which no one had done before, apart from Clark McCallum, you know, the guys at Barker. But there was a few people that saw something in me there and gave me a life that I did not know existed. And they gave me an apprenticeship. I worked at David Wilson Homes in Coventry, uh, sweeping the floor as a labourer. And then I'd get the bus over via Hinkley to Leicester every Tuesday and Thursday night. There was a guy called Steve Newman as well at Leicester um, who, who's, who was in the academy. He got picked up from that game as well. And his dad used to take me over. And it was one of them. You hear these stories of like SAS and Navy SEALs. The ones that succeed are the ones that have nowhere else to go. I had nowhere else to go. This was it. This was an opportunity that I didn't know existed. Uh, and I latched onto it. And, you know, if you speed forward, that fight that I had in the Warwickshire under 18s game against Leicestershire under 18s the guy that I was fighting uh went on to be the best man at my wedding and um is okay. now the forwards coach at Leicester Brett Deacon so you know like you said Gully rugby has got this amazing ability to bind people at any level um like I don't think you can be bound in any other sport and I know people talk about the power of sport I just think the power of rugby, and the reason is, I, I know I'm going on a little bit here, the reason is with rugby is because you don't need to be gifted to make it at the highest level. The game's changed a little bit now. We've seen the athletics and stuff, but you're not far away. Like, if you're playing lower league rugby, you're not, look at Alex Dombran, you're not far away from being at the very top because it is a unique sport. And I think that I look back, which I try not to, too much I'm a person that likes to look forward but me and Gully have gone around the houses a little bit over 10 pints didn't we afterwards uh, about about where it went but you know speaking frankly Gully as we know you were the better player you know but if it wasn't through injury and opportunity and timing which sport is a lot of it is these things and luck and you make your own luck and my mindset so many things Mike lined up for, for me so many things lined up for me then to go on. And as much as you make your own luck, if it wasn't for Barker Butts, if it wasn't for Callum McClark, um, McCallum, sorry, who, who was my teacher at school, and it wasn't for Dean Richards and Dusty Hare, you know, who knows? 
probably be in the neck. It's hard to sort of hear you be so modest about yourself when obviously all I've seen is the, the glittering career that you, you, you've had subsequently. But Gully, when, when this opportunity sort of came for Jim, could you remember it at the time? And was it, were you thinking, hey, it's, it's done well to get into the Leicester side? I always thought it was crap. <laughs> hey, it, it, <laughs> well, Jim touched on it. And it's a bit of a, it was a what the fuck moment, genuinely. And I'm just being honest. And I remember, um, but it's a, it's a fuck. But great news for Jim. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, go and do it. And then like Jim said, he's just a hard bastard. So he went up there and did you, in your first training session, just go and fill a few in and then just continue doing that and then, <laughs> then work out and then work on your rugby. Is that like, you, you go to training and got your boxing gloves ready? <laughs> well, that was it. I mean, that was, I mean, you've got to remember, Gully, well, you were close to it as well. Like you would have seen like your yeah. background with your, with your dad. There was a kind of inherited kind of old school mentality back then, but that's exactly what it was. Like that, it was basically when I went to Leicester, they wouldn't give you your kit. So I, I had to train in my Barker socks, Warwickshire shorts, and all the lads are taking the piss, didn't they? They're like, oh, yeah, it's too big time to wear the kit. But you had to literally, no pun intended, you had to earn your stripes. And it wasn't until you had a fight at training. And I remember I was, you know, uh, I had Martin Johnson in my team uh, up against uh, Guy Manton Bishop and um, I think uh, Dan Lyle, who was the American second row on the opposition team. And it was obviously everyone else. It was eight on eight. And a big, you know, I was pretty good at mauling. That was my point of difference. Went over the top and Guy Manton Bishop ended up sending one over. I thought, here we go. So I'm sending uppercuts through and literally windmilling and a big fight kicks off. And at that point, we get in the huddle. Jono pulls us all out. And at that point, I got sent to the kit room to go and pick up me Leicester Tigers training gear. I'd earned my stripes by um, having a good old scrap. Mate, but, that's 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 class. <laughs> it's fucking class, that is, isn't it? But I, well, just on my point about about the what the fuck, it wasn't. It was just like there was because we saw me and Dad both spoke in the car about you. It's just like this because we spotted like yeah, there's something there, and you, you were very well. You're a humble man now, but even at 15, 16, you were so grateful we couldn't pick you up from Jobs Lane or Job's Lane for the posh folk of Cov in the in my dad's Nissan Micra that he got from Kenilworth Rugby Club because he was player coach there. <laughs> and there's the four, the three of us in this Micra going to training. It's fucking, it's good memories, mate. But it was like, yeah, yeah, really good memories. But with that as well, Gilly, you know, like you you speak about your dad doing that and Steve's dad taking me over there and. I think as a like sometimes as as a young man, if you, if you're troubled or a young person that you know maybe doesn't have the family support, it's like you hear about it. You hear you know not that I'm bloody Mike Tyson, but you you listen to Mike Tyson's story about you know the story that he went through and the, the young coach and the young trainer picked him up. And I know people across the country will be doing this for people. You cannot understate and undervalue that like stuff like that. Small things. Do you know what I mean? By just picking someone up from the house and taking them to training. Do you know what I mean? Just taking okay. someone under your wing. And like you said, you don't know what people are going through. You don't know what's happening at home. You don't know their backstory. You don't know their motivations. You know, it, you took me to training, not because you thought I was going to be something, because you were good people. Do you know what I mean? And I think that that's what it boils down to with rugby and with the people. And, you know, your dad was one of the hardest players I think I've ever seen. And he, and he is. Like, he's one of the hardest players I've ever done it. And he's picking me up in this Nissan Michael with his lad, taking me up to Barker Burts. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't need to do yeah. that. No. They just did. And I think that that is, just shows you the, the kind of value of people. Yeah. Definitely. And I think and the value of, of sport and rugby more widely. And you, you touched on something, Jim, there. Um, obviously, on how 
in rugby, in the second flight and the upper echelons of the sort of semi-pro game, you are always sort of very, very close. And the difference between that and making a top flight, as you've sort of exemplified with your story there, are quite finite. Um, on this show, we've been lucky enough to have the likes of uh, Tom Young's, Thomas Francis, Ali Price come and tell all of their story and how actually there, were, there was a break or there was something. And in this instance, they've all come through the championship. We're a championship show and that's that's the message that we're pushing. We've also talked to a lot of champ warriors who have had fantastic careers within the division. Obviously, we're sat with one here with uh, with Gully now, but Mark Bright in, in recent weeks. I mean, Will Maisie, who may go on to, to play at a higher flight, but uh, who've you know been very close and battled up till now uh, in this division. Let, let's dive into the, the championship then and like your experiences within it. Because I, I think you've played a bit in the league, didn't you, with Nottingham? But in terms of your interactions with it as a player and then maybe how you've seen it viewed now that you're out of the game and in, and in the media, what, what's your sort of overall view and your, um, I guess, your opinions on the league? Yeah, so on the initial introduction, you, you mentioned it there, but you didn't touch on it. I played for Nottingham, played about eight games for Nottingham uh, back in the day. Um, and this is where it was so good back then, the championship, where there's question marks over it now. And I'll get into it and I'll give you my opinion on it. So back when I played for Nottingham, you know, the date might be slightly out, but I reckon it was around 2001, 2002. Mm. That's where there wasn't a huge difference between the championship and premiership. There was a kind of seamless transition from the two leagues. There was an appetite to share players and to have young guys come through. You just mentioned some of them. It was the Tom, Wong, uh, Tom Young's one that I listened to. So Tom Young's, I was at Leicester with him. He was a hooker. Um, but he, as we know, formerly before he was a centre and he went to Nottingham to apply his trade and then look at what's happened and what he's been able to do. The, the issue, and again, I'm going to flip flop. The issue that you've got now is because there is a professionalism or perceived professionalism and there's money at the top end of the game with the academies, with the school system where they try and miss out the championship now because there is now a, a route into playing top flight men's rugby at a younger age because the lads are more conditioned, uh, because they've been in a system since they were 16, because of the school system, there's now a pathway. Back in the day, there was academies, there was these things, but there wasn't the level of rugby and competition, even though there was an A-League, even though there was an academy games, but the championship offered something different. It offered men's rugby. It toughened players up because of historically, it wasn't as bad as, you know, Aggie at Cov and, and big mm -hmm. Tony Gulliver at Cov, where you'd go in there and, and you'd be getting filled in, but there was still a physicality element to it. You, you know, you'd be going up to Otley, you'd be going down to Cornish Pirates, you'd be going to the arse end of the world, albeit beautiful, um, to play in tough games. And there was an apprenticeship for us youngsters. Dan Cole was another one who went through the system uh, as well at Nottingham. And it seemed like it worked. The salaries weren't that big. You know, I was probably earning the same amount, if not maybe a little bit less than some of the Nottingham players when I, when I was playing at Nottingham. Um, and I loved it. I thought it was absolutely amazing. I found it very tough, um, albeit I, at that point, I was probably a standout player for a few games in the games against Nottingham, uh, for Nottingham that I played in. But I had to go up to Otley and play a game. And I remember there was a, a ginger, Royal Marie Land, that had the biggest arms I've ever seen. And like, he saw this young buck coming from Leicester. And I thought I was hard until I met him. And he's literally burying me in a puddle. I'm, I'm literally drowning. Uh, and if it weren't the fact that I could hold my breath for three minutes, I probably would have drowned. And I remember going out a big gash on my head, no stitches, got in the shower and there was like, a, like I literally couldn't have a shower, got in this big mud bath. I was thinking probably going to get an infection out of here, but it's going to toughen me up. 
And it was them kind of experiences that I had that, again, shaped the career to go into the premiership that I've had now. And I feel, and I don't know the ins and outs of it, I know a little bit the ins and outs of the relationships that the clubs have. Leicester had a fantastic relationship with Nottingham. There was nothing more than the fact that you could send players up to Nottingham and because of the psyche that we had, they would fit in there. Youngsy, Coley, myself, just to name three. And we loved it. We gave everything to it now. I remember being at Gloucester. I was captain at Gloucester. And you had Hartbury on your doorstep. And we know the players that have come through Hartbury. And I couldn't believe the kind of animosity between the two entities. And I'm thinking, you've got the dream scenario here. You've got the dream scenario to make something unbelievable work. Uh, and as we know, well, I don't know if you know, the relationship seems to have broke down. Gloucester moved away from Hartbury. Um, but as you look at the Hartbury setup and the players that come through there, I know they weren't necessarily in the championship back then, but some of the best players, like just to name a few, like uh, Alex Cuthbert, Alice Genge, uh, Lewis Reese Samet, I think, played for uh, Johnny Hartbury. May, uh, Henry Trinder. Johnny May, Henry Trinder. Yeah, of course. So you're looking at players that have played in, in, in the kind of league below. My question mark now is the state of the championship. And the fact that it doesn't have that professional element that it seemed to want to have the appetite for, whether or not it's safe enough to put players into the championship now, whether or not it's commercially viable in terms of, because these players are now similar to football, they're assets to the club, aren't they? You know, if you've got a young player that's in the English system, a young Marcus Smith coming through, you know, he's potentially going to be, if we're talking about the vulgarities of money, he's potentially going to be a million pound player. So do you want him applying his trade. I know Harlequins have just done a deal with London Scottish. Would you send a young Marcus Smith to London Scottish now to play in a team that's part-time of amateurs, whereas before there was an appetite to have London Scottish or a Hartbury or a Nottingham as full-time and there was a professional with physio and nutrition and all these things that you need to make it? I don't know. And I know that they've done a deal with London Scottish or whether or not that happens. And in answer to the other question, go on, Mike, you can ask me if you want. I can give you the answer. No, I, I've got a lot going to finish because I'll... Uh, my next question then, and it, it's fine. So where do... The, you've got a squad, premiership squad. Say you've got 45, 50 players. So are you suggesting that A-League and academies alone is a sufficient development pathway to go and then step up and play premiership? And if you say, is it safe to have them play this league? But then is it safe to have them go into a premiership game underprepared? And then the point about Marcus Smith. Marcus Smith is probably never going to play championship. But for every Marcus Smith that's a superstar at 18, there's five players that weren't at 22. And then where do those players that weren't a superstar at 18 go? Because you've got 12, now 13 premiership sides with a matchday squad of, what, 23 playing rugby. And that is a very, very, very narrow select pool of players to create the best English rugby team that there possibly could be. So if the rest of these talented players have come through the hundreds of rugby clubs that we've got in the league, where do you think the most appropriate place for these players to get a competitive level of rugby is? And where does the rugby player that's not a superstar as a teenager go if he's got any ambition of wanting to play professionally? Well, Mike, I've got an opinion on this, right? Whether or not, I don't know the answer to it because I don't, at 100%, I'm out of the game now. I coached the Saracens Academy for a couple of years, so I don't understand necessarily the pathway in terms of like what they do in terms of number of minutes and games that players play, like how it transfers into them being ready. There'll be, you know, there's obviously science behind it now. I think when you look at the championship and how I would perceive the championship, I think it's an unbelievable pathway 
to have for players coming through if the relationship is right between the club. So, for example, the Gloucester-Hartbury one, let's use that analogy because I was at Gloucester, Hartbury were on a doorstep, Hartbury overly achieved and they've developed some of the best players that we've seen playing for the Lions, right? So they're a great example. For me, if the match day 23 at Gloucester, say you've got 23 players, 24, 25, including like a couple of extras, where do the rest play on the Saturday? I think there's a part where you need to condition your body to play on a Friday night, a Saturday or a Sunday, week on week on week on week, because that's notoriously, if you are going to make it at any level, whether it's championship or whether it's premiership, international, you play the games at the weekend. As a young lad, yeah, you'll play on a Monday night, you might play on a Wednesday night and, uh, and a Sunday or whatever. You might play two or three games a week. So there needs to be a kind of routine, a pathway in which you're preparing yourself to be in that similar situation, whatever way you, that you make it. So I would use the championship. So if I am a Gloucester and I've got a relationship with Hartbury and the way that the championship is now, where there is no, there's no, um, is there a relegation or not? I know there's obviously no promotion. Have they closed off the champ or not? No, it was no relegation this year uh, with with promotion, but obviously that didn't go through. But next year there will be relegation is my understanding. Okay. Well, that's what I mean. So the relegation causes another complexity, doesn't it? Because if you're Hartbury, Okay, and you've got a load of lads in the in the university, or you're you've got some lads that are semi-professional, you know, they're working or whatever, you've got them playing, and then you drop down a young player from Gloucester who then takes up this position to play the game for the pathway. Well, that lad's gonna be pissed off and he's gonna be like, Well, what's the point of being here? Because I might not play at the weekend, because on Thursday, Gloucester might send a, you know, a player that's in that position. I'm not gonna get a game. So what am I gonna do? So I can't answer that question in terms of that side of it. But I think you've got a model in which Nottingham had with Leicester, which Exeter could have with Cornish Pirates, which Sale could have with uh, a Leeds or a Doncaster or uh, or whatever, a Newcastle could have the same. And I know that they do nitpick players. Saris used to send players to Amptel, for example, or Bedford, but it wasn't joined up. And I think there are parts, I know Saracens are fairly joined up with Bedford and uh, Amptel or you know even uh, old Albanians down the road. But I think they've got an opportunity now with the, how physical the game is and the pathway for players that absolutely, and you've seen, we've gone through the players, you need to use the championship as a vehicle. It needs to be funded and we can get onto that. I was at dinner last night at a London Scottish event and one of the journalists, very outspoken, credible media, made an unbelievable statement. He said that the money that Eddie Jones gets for England could fund the championship how many times over? You know what I mean? They, the fact that they've taken the money out of the championship and they're paying, and, and, you know, he can get paid what he wants to get paid. You know, like that's, he's got a value on there. But the RFU have got a vehicle with the championship, a proven model of developing top end players. And that's probably more through default than design. I don't think the RFU have thought, oh, here we go. You know, we've got a championship here that could potentially bring on players to pay for it. It's kind of happened because the clubs have taken the initiative. But like you've said, then if you've got young players coming through the system, they need to be playing on a Saturday, travelling up and down the country, that kind of uncomfortableness. Um, but the only way they can do that is if the championship's funded and it's safe to do so, but not that it's unsafe. So just so I understand almost then your vision for the championship, would you see it as feeder clubs to the Prem? Is that how you think it could work? As you said, you mentioned the models there between, talked about Scottish, and uh, Harlequins, Gloucester, Hartbury, obviously Nottingham, Leicester. Is that where you'd see the future of the league potentially? Let's say Jim Hamilton's been put in front of growing the game professionally in England. Is that the sort of angle that you reckon you'd take the league down? 
the romance in me because of the backstory, yes. But I think where the game is now, and if I could do it, I would. If, if I had an endless pot of money, that I would have affiliations with, like, if you're not playing for Leicester at the weekend, you're playing for Nottingham, right? And Nottingham might get a Matt Scott playing in the centre. You see it in New Zealand, right? You see it in New Zealand. I love New Zealand because of what they do. The lads have an affiliation to their kind of club, right? And I know that it's, it's different here. There's a different model and schools or whatever, which they have in New Zealand and South Africa. But in New Zealand, I loved Richard McCaw going back. I played against Richard McCaw in New Zealand when I was playing for Marist Albion. And we had uh, a, a Kiwi fullback, I remember his name, Ben something, played 15. Um, anyway, we had him playing for us. And then we played against Richard McCaw. And they're playing club rugby. And then all the crowds come out. I love that affiliation. Kieran Reid, we've seen him do the same. I love the affiliation of a Leicester Nottingham, of an extra Cornwall, where the, the romance in me says, if you're not playing at the weekend or you're coming back from injury, go and play in the champ. But then I don't know how the model works because as coaches in the champ, you don't know who you're going to get. Do you know what the, the problem is? And it's, a, it's I think it's a rugby thing, like where we are in the game at the moment. But the, the championship clubs basically fucked up 10 years ago <laughs> and it's it's that sort of this missed an opportunity there because there was an opportunity when I was playing in it and it was you know they rebranded it and it was a, there was a good interest in the league the attendances were good pretty much across the league and it's like we've missed a trick there but like like you say like how, how then do we remodel it so it has we know it has value but how does it have commercial value but also how does it have a genuine um route for players into a into a professional league and I think when you spoke with Mark Evans on your pod Jim you're saying that for all successful national teams there needs to be at least two professional leagues is what he was saying so if the if the championship was a fully professional league then it adds value to the premiership but then also ultimately adds value to the England national team so that's the route I'd like to see it go down but how we get there I mean fuck knows it's like it's because there's not the money in the game for it. It's just, I just feel like the champ missed an opportunity, but where is the solution and what is the next opportunity around the corner? And it's, it's a tricky one to sort of navigate. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see the champ go professional and say you put a, a cap on it. And again, we spoke about salary, didn't we, Gully? Which when our podcast comes out, people are going to be probably horrified to hear some of the salaries that people get paid. But you put a kind of cap on the salary. So you put a 35 or 40 grand, whatever the number is, whatever the kind of comfortable number is, an investment, and then you have, yeah, like you have 30 players or whatever, or whatever the number is playing in the championship that affiliates Nottingham, um, obviously um, Cornish Pirates, whoever it is, Bedford, uh, Coventry, Hartbury, and you have them players. And you know that out of that 30 players that you've got, they get getting paid there, you can draw down or people are going to be drawn down. You're aware of the kind of model that happens in that. But it's going to take, and if people don't like it in, in rugby at the minute, for whatever we saw that with Saracens, and excuse the phrase, I like the phrase, I'd like to be one of them, you need a sugar daddy to come in. We need money, right? That's what it is. And I think what happened with the salary cap at Saris has almost paused the game slightly because I think there's an appetite to invest money into the game in that way and make super clubs and make, as in like what Man City have done in football, what Newcastle United have done in football, as in people with open wallets who love rugby and want to put as much money. There's just too many, oh, I can't say 
the word before blocks, but there's too many blocks in the in the ranks at the minute. And again, I don't know. I'm not smart enough. Mm. And the you know, like Mark Evans contextualized it really well. Mine's more emotion led, really, when it comes to it because I love the championship. I've had mates that have played in it. My mate Ravo played in it for years as well. My mates at Nottingham, you know what I mean? Like, as in, I've got a, a love with it, but I'm also horrified by some of the stories that have come out of it in terms of injury, in terms of lack of uh, player welfare, um, the, the salaries that some of the players were getting on, and the personal development for the transition because, <clears throat> you know, everyone's talking about transition, everyone's talking about concussion. And again, at this London Scottish dinner, I said, you know, now I've got a profile and I'm moaning about it. I'm, you know, people are moaning about concussion where they've got endless pots of uh, opportunities to, to, to get into and to talk about it. What about you lads that played in the champ for 15 years? Where's your pot? Where's your profile to talk about it? Do you know what I mean? And that's the thing. And that's, the, you know, ultimately the vulgarities of rugby, which at some point there needs to be a shift in the dial. And that's only going to come down to someone investing it and putting money in. Mm. all very interesting points and it's good to hear you talking with such passion about the league obviously Gully and I enjoy talking about the league with passion for, for so long I worked at, at Doncaster Knights for, for nine years and sort of the communications and marketing department um, now gone into agency work with with Man City club that you just just referenced there, the 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 model that you talk about with the the sort of the the, the two clubs and the, and the links and how you mentioned it works in New Zealand raises another question that I want to bring us on to, and we will we'll drill deeper into the funding I think as we go on. Obviously in New Zealand you don't have promotion and relegation, and I think that once you've got a lot of proud clubs in the championship, you've talked about your time at Coventry, talked about Nottingham, who obviously in years past were one of the leading club sides in the league and obviously Bedford, uh, another team with rich, rich history. Once these sides uh, sign agreements and through necessity, I think, because effectively if you've got, if you've got 15 Prem players coming for a week, you can all of a sudden the budget that you've got goes twice as far because you have to sign half as many players because you've contractually got an agreement with Quinns or Saints or whoever it is. But then for me, it opens a gulf between promotion and relegation. And look, we saw at the weekend, Gloucester put 60 points on Bath, you know, in a West Country derby. And I've heard arguments that say removing relegation will make for an open, more entertaining league where teams play with the shackles off because they're not worried about the threat of being in the champ for a year. Where do you sit on promotion and relegation? We're quite clear that we feel like the movement of teams should be sacrosanct between the leagues. But are we one eyed to that because of our disposition to the league? I don't think <clears throat> the way that the structure is at the minute that the, that the championship can grow when there's a promotion relegation. Because as we've seen, it's one up, one down. And it's usually the same team that comes up. You know what I mean? So mm. when Newcastle were going down, Newcastle came and Worcester go down, they came one with the money. Very quickly, though, you know. For me, that you've got P shares. You've got a side that's come down relegated with even when the funding of the championship was at six hundred grand a year or whatever it was, it's it's a it's a fraction of the P shares that that relegated side still received. We talk about football again. You get relegated, you get parachute payments, you get promoted, you get an equal share of the funding of every other Premier League side. You've got thirteen sides of the club <laughs> receiving twenty times the funding when it was good of what these other sides are, and then we say, "Well, hang on, the promoted, the relegated side gets promoted again." Yeah, it, for me, it's obvious. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think 
you've mentioned that game, or I'll touch on the Gloucester Bath game because I played in many of them games. And people are speaking the fact that there's no relegation. It's an easy kind of thing to put Bath a shite at the minute. So that's a kind of snapshot of them, really. It doesn't matter if there's promotion and relegation. You know, there's so much to compete for. You've got, for me in the Premiership, you've got top Just eight. Quickly, sorry to, would Bath be this shite if relegation was on the table? Or would they have done yes. something about it earlier? Do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. I think there's something deeply rooted that, that's not wrong, you know, that's wrong in that team. It might have been slightly different. I mean, we don't know. We're obviously speaking hypothetically, and a lot of credible media people have said said different. You know, for me, the Premiership, there's enough to make Europe, right? There's enough kind of incentive to make Europe and to make that top four um, incentive, right? I understand the relegation battle is obviously huge because there is a, you know, there's a significant drop now, as we know, we've just spoken about in terms of the funding. Like, I love promotion relegation. I love it in football. It's one of them where you, there's a celebration, isn't there? At the bottom of the table, is you've not been relegated. Do you know what I mean? The excitement builds. But I'm thinking about the commerciality. And again, my opinions might change. It might change when we're on here. But I look at the kind of championship where how you could use that as a semi-pro slash professional vehicle to better the game where there's opportunities for guys like Gully gone by. Do you know what I mean? Where you're playing in the championship and you, you're getting paid a decent salary. There's a professional outfit, but there's also a pathway. At the minute, I look at, like, London Scottish, like, you know, for the bottom of the champ, like, they're nowhere near it. They've got no investment. They're not professional. They're part-time at best. And I'm like, that compared to Ealing, it's not, it ain't like Leicester and Bath or Leicester and Worcester. Like, we're talking different planets here between London Scottish and an Ealing side. So if you made it a kind of a closed off league in the champ, but you funded it in a way in which everything was equal, there was a reason why you were doing it because there was a partnership with a London Scottish Quinns, like we've just gone through it, like Nottingham Leicester, then clearly there's a, there's a reason why the championship exists. There's a reason why, well, Gully would get out of bed just to, play a game in the, the absolute blizzard. But there's a way in which there's an appetite for younger lads, you know, who work as well to actually make it professionally because they can see a pathway and they're getting paid 30 grand for doing it or 35 grand or whatever the number is that you put on it. But I know some people won't like that because you've got someone like Ealing and maybe it should be looked at. And you'd be like, right, okay, Ealing, you've got the appetite and the money and the infrastructure to be in the premiership. So let's put you in the premiership because there's a, there's a commercial reason why and we'll add another team and work out. Yes. There's another game or whatever. I think there's too many games anyway. I think, I think there should be half. They should be home and away uh, year, year one. And then year two, I think there's double the amount of games. Evan X have left me up on that as well. So if he says it, I'm happy to is, go with that it in from, terms of globally. Is that just from a player welfare point of view, Jim? Yeah, I just think it's too many. I just think yeah. it's too many games. I think like you think, right, if you're in the championship and you're playing, I don't know how many teams are we talking in the championship now? It's 11, but it'll go back up to 12 next year because so, oh, relegation, but promotion. There's of um, course, so there is a promotion come up. Okay, yeah. so hope, so you, if you think right in in the championship, there was 11 games, or you're playing 11 games a season, as in like competitive to finish top and to finish bottom, right? And the Premiership did the same thing, and it was a closed off league, and you know it's almost like a micro tournament of going force the wall to try and win that league. Yes, you would need something else, wouldn't you? You'd need another competition whether it be a cup competition or whether it be, you know, or two parts of the season, like two competitions that year. But you need to be fighting for something, don't you? Because at the minute, the championship, you're not fighting for promotion. 
are you? So what, what's the point? What's the point in putting money into Ealing to fight for promotion? You finish top of the league, there's no point. Do you know what I mean? Or a Doncaster. Doncaster have been fighting the battle for years. What, for what? <laughs> like what? So as a player, what's the point? But if you know that there's a pathway, if you know that I'm in this professional environment, one, because this is my level, because you have to be frank about that, the championship will be some player's level. And you get paid 30 grand and you get paid 35 grand. And yes, you can go and do other things. And there's a personal develop, development thing. But also, if you're a young lad coming through, like a Don Brand, I say that, I know he played in Wales. It's a, probably a poor analogy. Uh, or myself or a Tom Young's at that point, and you know that there's a pathway and an 18, 19-year-old lad, you're carving up the champ and you're playing every Saturday, every Saturday, you're trying to finish top of the champ and you're going to get picked up. It just, it seems like this a, in a much easier way, but that doesn't involve promotion relegation. Yeah, I just, I think as well, where we're at with it, because of the level of contract opportunity in the championship, that guy that is 22, 23, that would have gone into the champ previously because the wages were better, will now just go from the game. He'll go play in that one and work in the city or, or do whatever. So you, you've lost um, a Mark Atkinson to the game. You've lost, you know, some, some, someone of someone like that. And that's that's the worry of the league at the minute for me. It's like, what what's the attraction for supporters, for, for investment, but also the players? Like, you know, that that's a genuine concern. It's like, like you just said, what is the point of the league? And is it, because like when I was in it, it was always like, we can, you can definitely get into the Prem here. There's a real opportunity because the league is what it is and it's it's well-funded. Now we're at a stage where the funding's poor, um, but it's been dropped. And there's the opportunity, is it there, is it not? The answer is yes, it is, because there's a lot of players going still into the Prem and they'll be successful in the Prem, like Rich Lane at, from Bedford to, to Bristol. So there'll always be those players. But then there's going to be a group that we may be loose to the game forever and they're just going bum around in that one and you know enjoy enjoy themselves that's what's it what's it what it's about but there, I, I am worried about it genuinely I, I mean just on that sorry mike i think i spoke to brian redpath last night he's coming as director of rugby of london scottish and he's like you've got to be realistic right when you're speaking to anyone that's playing for london scottish right because you you, you can only use the tools that you've got and if you're part-time and you've got players that aren't good enough one to play in the Prem nor is there a pathway to get into the Prem through the Championship then how do you motivate them how do you say to someone at London Scottish when you stood around in the huddle and you're at Cornish Pirates away in the winter and you're looking at each other in the eye how do you motivate them like what what are the words that you say to them so that's the discussion isn't it around teams where there isn't the funding there isn't like you know they're not going to get promoted like there isn't that pathway they just they don't have the money even to remotely compete so what, it comes back to Gully's point. You've got to try and motivate them players that are playing in that team. They're getting paid, I don't know, 10 grand a year, you know, 15 grand a year. They're getting being put through university. They're working in the city. And that's where there's such a disconnection. The fact that you've got an Ealing where they've got players that are full-time. You know, Doncaster, I'm sure there's full-time players. Uh, Coventry have got a little bit of money now. So, you know, that's the big thing. So interesting. And I like you make you make a fantastic point, you know, like you've got Ealing and London Scottish last year. It's like complete other ends of the spectrum of where they are. And, I mean, this deal, this deal with London Scottish and Harlequins is probably actually, you know, it's, it's, it's probably going to be, a, they're probably going to be a much more competitive, far greater side. But I think ultimately, if you kind of said to the top brass at Scottish and you, you were there last night, hang on, you don't actually have to sort of give the keys to the castle, the coaching structure, the teams to, to, to another side. You can keep your own identity, but 
here's a fair level of funding and, you know, compete on your own footing. Safeguard that funding because what happens invariably when you give teams money, it all goes into the first team. The things that you mentioned, like player welfare and physio and stuff kind of almost become secondary and that's that can't be the case. But I think, and of course I'm biased, I'm very, very unashamedly fucking biased. <laughs> I think a fairly funded second flight with promotion and relegation for sides that are ambitious, for your Ealings, for your Doncasters, um, makes for... A, a competitive professional game outside the top five and be the best development opportunity. We've seen this year, Gully, probably the most exciting championship race we've had in years. You had Cornish Pirates, Doncaster Knights and Ealing, three fully professional sides um, who've invested a lot of money in the game through their ownership. And it went down to the final weekend. And then Ealing's bids for promotion was ultimately rejected by the RFU on the grounds that they didn't have the, uh, the, the 10,000 seat stadium. The irony is that if Bath were to get relegated, they'd fail that same criteria to go back up. And if you want to join the English Premier League, you can do so with 5,000 seats. Now, is it healthy for the game to... I think I heard Mark Evans say on your podcast recently, is it healthy for the game to have four of the potentially 14 professional sides in the country within a 10-mile radius of each other? Probably not. But for all those reasons and all those motivations that you guys just highlighted, I think a fairly funded second flight based on criteria, you know, based on the development, based on providing flight players to the Premiership and to the uh, England side and, and referees, because that's another big development pathway for those guys. I think funding is the answer, but I am happy to have people come on the show and, and give alternative views. I want to delve and take the conversation a little bit wider now, uh, Jim, and uh, get your views on this. And again, something that was touched on with um with um with mark evans on your recent pod but in terms of marketing and growing the game and i don't just mean the championship i mean the premiership and the grassroots what do you think rugby is maybe not doing me and gully spoke before you came on air about you know when the rugby pod was first launched it was a complete it was almost it was almost pioneering in terms of rugby media you know what i mean it was People saying things like, oh, hang on, you can't say that about the RFU. Hang on, you can't say that about the RFU. You can't talk about that. That's not done in rugby. That, that's a football type way of, uh, of of being in the media. And, you know, imitation is the highest form of flattery because similar other publications with a similar sort of, uh, of I guess, MO have followed. But what do you think the game needs to do next to attract, uh, sorry, to widen its appeal to a mass market? So I think uh, the rugby's going through a tough time at the minute for a number of different reasons. This is one conversation, which is a big conversation. The other one is obviously concussion and everything around how safe the game is. Uh, another one is around the money, finance, which is always going to be same in football. I follow football, you know, it's the same thing. I know the American sports are very different now. They've got unlimited pots of money because they've, they've grown, gone so big. For me, Rugby already is a difficult sport to consume, right? So I was sat at a Scotland International uh, this year uh, and I was with the masses, man of the people. So with the, with the masses, we're quite a way away. And I'm watching the game and I can't see much going on. I've got this bloke next to me, like he's going mad. Oh, breath of And I'm just sat there and I'm like, mate, like you don't have a clue. I can't see what's going on. Like I don't like I don't understand what's going. On. I can't see. Obviously, I, I I can see what's happening. I can give a snapshot, but I couldn't walk away from that game and say he played well, he didn't play well. You can see clear and the obvious things happen in the game. And my point being on that, rugby is a very difficult game to understand. Right, even if you're at the top end, referees don't understand 
they make so many mistakes, even the very best around scrum time. So we're talking about one of the most complex games to consume, right? Football, love it. You get the ball in there, bang, you get the ball in there and you can't be offside, that's it. Can't touch you around, that's it. Rugby, there's like held up over the line, held up with the mall, counter-rucking, charge down on the kick, uh, line out 50-22s, which I love, by the way, um, double movements, uh, tackle not complete so he can get back on his feet. Uh, Jackal is on his hand, but he's got away with that one. But no, he's on his other hand. That one he's not. As in, it's just, it's so difficult to consume. So we need to understand that it's a tough game, right? In terms of consumer and growth perspective. Also, in the past, it's been very pigeonholed. Your tweed jacket, your boat shoes and your pink shirts, right? That's the demographic of rugby players. And arguably, you could say it's tragic because, you know, that's what it is. And, I, and gully, we fit into that mould, you especially, right, when you watch a game of rugby. So <laughs> I try not to, mate. <laughs> I just wear a cap backwards. But Jim, 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 on that, like, we're from working class backgrounds, yet you try and fit into that, don't you? And it's wrong. Yeah. You can't go... that's the narrative. That's a narrative. I've got to put a tweed jacket on. I've got to wear a flat cap and I've got to get my boat shoes on. Otherwise, I'm not going to fit in and I've got to drink Guinness. But that's all right. <laughs> of but, course. But it's it, like you say, it's the same. You go to Twickenham and it's the same face, isn't it? It's just like, fuck it. Now. It's not changed for, for 50 years. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got that, right? And I'm going to give you my, what I think, my idea of how it could look. You've also got, right, to consume a game of rugby at the weekend, uh, whoever your team is, we can't get the champ now, and they can get a bit on YouTube or whatever. But let's like, we'll go top end, right? So you're a casual fan, you're not going to the game, but oh, watch a bit of rugby at the weekend. Is it on ITV? Is it on BBC? Is it on BT Sport? Is it on Premier Sports? Is it on Amazon? Is it on Sky? Can you watch Super Rugby? What I mean, <laughs> like, it. It, it's impossible to consume. So with the way that our minds work now and this new age of next gen coming through where we've got the average capacity to view things of 20 seconds and then flick up or flick down, it's impossible to consume. So my appetite has been having watched other sports and liking rugby and not loving the game. I, just, I like rugby because of what it's given me. I, li I like football. I like boxing. I like American sports. I like stories. My ambition was to change the dial and be like, you know what? Rugby is a corporate, it's a well-to-do sport. There's a, a kind of private school element to it and there always will be because that's the demographic of people that play rugby. And yes, we're seeing other characters come into the game. But we're talking about some of the loosest lads, some of the most interested, um, different walks of life, silly, stupid, like so intelligent, like the most interesting quirky characters like ever in any team we've all got them you've got 15 23 you've got 40 lads in there all doing the same thing but also different and my appetite was to kind of showcase that and we took a risk doing the rugby pod when we did that because we took people into the changing rooms and we wanted to say how things were you know you've got world rugby we thought world rugby were making the decision so we were calling world rugby out on you know globalizing the season on making it easier to consume, like player participation numbers, like funding, like everything. Then we found that World Rugby don't have a say. The poor blokes at World Rugby, they don't have a say at all. Bill Beaumont and Augustin Pisha, people think that they're running the show. They ain't running anything. Like, they ain't running anything. It's the Six Nations and it's Sanzar in South Africa. So no one knows this. So it's like, if no one knows what's going on or who's making the decisions, how do you grow the game? 
And then the other part to it is, and people will hate me saying this, right? Why do you watch boxing? Watch someone get knocked out. And the, the story, the sell, it's, you know, it's your Eddie Hearns, it's your Jake Paul, it's the promotion beforehand, probably more than the event, it's the shit talking, isn't it? So the promotion and the event to then see a knockout. So you lads have just said it how it is. And at the minute, people are hating on, they are, and I'll and I say it, and, and, and there's a big shift at the minute, there's a big movement, and I understand, and, and there's definitely right reasons for player safety. And Gully, we went round the fucking houses on this. Mate, you've been through the mill and you wouldn't change it for the world. I've been through the mill and I wouldn't change it for the world. There's a big play now around concussion. I completely get that. And absolutely, you are playing a contact sport where the highlights, the most viewed things around rugby are collisions, are big hits, big hits. That's what people want to see. They want to see big hits. They want to see off, ridiculous offloads and they want to see tries. They don't want to see scrums unless you're a purist like me and Gully or Rooks and Moles. They want to see the headline things like they do in NFL. Sla I mean, I watch basketball. It's boring as sin until you get a slam dunk. <laughs> so we've got to understand what it is about our game, where the interest lies, right? And there's a big shift at the minute around trying to sanitise that. And I understand why. I understand why they're trying to make the game safe. There's a number of ways that you can do that. In my opinion, too many games. So if you want to, if you want to get player safety, then why the hell are you making them play 40 games a season, you idiots? What, why are you putting 40 games on the calendar for them? And cutting the salary cap so they can't have as many players. Like it's, it's, like it's mental. And, I can, you know, we can't say that because, it, well, we can say that, but it's obviously... We're not, uh, we're not decision makers. And you look at the championship, the growth of that. If it was me, you, I, I, I'd be streaming them. I know you're streaming the games in terms of like building up the stories and it comes down to investment, it comes to funding. Where I see the game going, I just think there needs to be a shift in terms of people understanding what the game of rugby is. Like It's a contact, it's a collision sport. Yes, we need to make the game safer. We need to cut down the collisions in that. But we need to understand that the excitement lies around it's 15 men, 15 men smashing fuck out of each other. And that's what it is. Mm. I think, I think it's, a, it's a really interesting point. And I think from a blue sky perspective, completely agree with you. And then I kind of sit with my rugby commercial hat on. I was like, well, less games, less revenue. There's not a great TV yeah. deal. How can you increase the salary cap? And then you, you yeah. kind of almost have to go back to a handful of blokes with a decent few quid to be able to bankroll it. And then... And then the investment isn't almost in the story, which is what it should be. So it, it's... <laughs> but how's football grown? So Mike, that, I, I agree with you, mate. The vulgarities of it are, how have these other sports grown? So when you look at it, it is... Oh, sport is driven by money. That is it. Like, whether we like it or not, yeah. I think the Premier League and the top level of sport has grown exponentially solely down to TV deals. Hmm. And, and, and okay. why do you get the TV deals? because people are interested and people pay money for it. But I think, again, it's it, it's the two go hand in hand. Well, I football's think. different. Yeah, fo football is different. I think the, the best model that we can look at is France. So you look at the top 14, you look at the stadiums, you look at the cult following that they've got. What's the salary cap? 15? Is it no, about, 15, about 15 mil. Don't quite, I mean, we'll, we'll Google that before it goes out. So if this has gone <laughs> out, 
that I'm right. I think the I think the salary cap in the top 14 is 15 mil. Do you know Do you know what the salary cap is at Leinster? Fuck knows. Best uh, team in the URC. Have a, have a have a dab. Well, Premiership it's about seven, isn't it? So let's let's. Premiership's five. Five. Is that five? Five plus marquee. But yeah, plus plus coach. Yeah, you're probably right. So give me the. I, I'm interested. I'm not putting you on the spot. I just I'm just interested to know because I didn't know. What do you think the salary cap is at Leinster? I'll go less. Or you ask say four. I'm gonna go higher. Um, I'm gonna go seven. So Edinburgh's salary cap is around three and a half, four. The salary cap in the URC, the rate one. Uh, there ain't a salary. There ain't a salary cap. Why the hell do you think Leinster win the league every year? (laughs) So. So we're talking about a joined-up approach, right? You've got a Leinster playing against uh, Treviso. It comes back down to the champ. You've got an Ealing versus a, a London Scottish. Like, so on one hand, we're saying there needs to be a salary cap, okay, because of the reasons that we're talking about in the Prem. And then on the other hand, we're talking about one of the best teams in Europe. They don't have a salary cap. Mm, it's interesting. <laughs> no salary cap at London Scottish. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like 200 could a game there. That's, um... So, yeah, I mean, there's a load of things. Look, you know, yeah. we could obviously go around the houses on it because there's, there's so many intricacies involved. I don't know. I just, just know that it's a mess. Just, just Jim, just b- before we finish up, the, the one area of growth in the game I see is is the women's game, right? So that that's an area of growth. I spoke to Mike beforehand. Now, TikTok have come on board with those guys. And there's a there's a story and there's an audience for it, and now we're seeing a new level of, I mean, it's it's going to take a bit of time for it to be to have a professional league in the Premiership, but it's going in the right direction now. The way that's marketed, and the stories that are being told, are interesting, right? <laughs> now I look at the men's side of the game, and the in, the interest for me is in the rugby pod, the good, the bad, and the rugby. Maybe Joe Marler's one. That's that's three different bits of content, and that's that's it. I, I don't know too much else about what else is going on in the Premiership. So there's, there's clearly opportunity there, isn't it? But it's just like you said, how, how it's structured and how we consume things. It's got to be short clips of good, exciting things, which the women's game are doing because they're, they're telling the story. So there's opportunity there, but it doesn't seem to be an appetite for it, which is frustrating. So uh, two points there. So my ambition was to do exactly that, to do what NFL and NBA did in terms of, we talked about it with the boxing, storytelling. So tell stories about people who play rugby, man or woman, they're some of the most interesting people in the world, right? Because you have to be to be able to play the sport, right? As in like people can't just walk off the street and go and smash into someone else at high speed. Like it's just not a, a normal thing to do from a normal person. So when you play rugby, you're built differently, okay? Uh, whether that is by fault or design, you have to be. And then I mentioned that the game's difficult to consume. So how do you make it interesting? Well, it's about the people. Like I watched NFL hard knocks and these kind of behind the scenes thing. I don't think I've ever watched a game of NFL uh, start to finish, ever. Yeah. But... I'm on there looking at the stories. I'm, I'm there looking at the athleticism around them. I'm looking at, you know, the big hits. I'm looking at the touchdowns. I'm, I, you know, I'm following Tom Brady on social media. I'm following a load of blokes. I don't even know who they are, but they look unbelievable because of the story, because of how they look, because they're playing a game that 99% of people can't or never will. And that is the growth market. I mean, it's great to see. And what it shows you with the women's game as well, Phil, is how quickly momentum can gather 
So if the championship had that and it had that kind of interest and it was backed by one of these social media platforms or something backed by something, how quickly the dial can change. Because we've seen in the Six Nations how quickly that woman's dial has changed. Look at the crowds that have, got, that have come in. Look at the appetite. Look at things are popping up on my social media now that I'm being hit with, like these kind of short things. Scaz getting 100 cap. Do you know what I mean? The emotion around that, like Adidas getting involved in that, like obviously TikTok, like you've just mentioned. So the dial can change. There's room for growth in rugby. There's absolute room for growth in rugby. The issue that we've got, and it's to say, look, football is not all, if we look at football as like the ultimate sport in the UK because of the money that's in it and the interest that's in it, we can't look at rugby like football because it's different. But my point being, they've got issues. You know what I mean? There's issues in, in any sport that you play in. I'm not well-versed to understand the nuances around it. I probably need to be, obviously, chatting to Mark Evans. That's his job. Journalists can do that. Mine is based on raw kind of superficial opinion, as it were. But there is room for growth. The women's game has shown that. We've seen that in the space of two or three months. And yes, Billy, you've been involved in that and there's been an appetite and an ambition to grow that. But it shows you how quickly that dial can change. And that could, that could happen for the championship as well. So if you're listening, Amazon, get yourself down to Goldington Road and have a chat with Mikey Rea. Be a, be a blockbuster. <laughs> i tell you what, just on that note, my next ambition, whether or not I do it with a championship, I uh, nearly did it with Hartbury when I was at Rugby Pass, but they, they, they weren't keen to do it in the end because of the funding. I would love to do a documentary on a grassroots club or a semi-professional club. Do you know what I mean? All the different characters and take them through the season and do it like as in a piece of content comes out every week and you start to fall in love like with your Chris Ashtons or, you know, your Joe Marlers of the team and stuff like that. These interesting, quirky characters who then, you know, go and work down the factory at the weekend. But it all comes back to, you know, getting the deep heat on, deep heat on at the weekend and getting the Vicks on the chest and stuff like that, you know, get the Vaseline on the eyebrows and the ears. Mate, love to do that. Mate, the one that jumps out would be Pirates there and you just spend a year with Ellen Paver, mate. You'd be fucking loving it. He'd be a superstar at the end of it. <laughs> That's what I mean. That's how you grow the game. Tell yeah. the stories of the interesting characters and then the commercial partners will latch onto it. That's what happened with the rugby pod. We were taking risks. We were like, what the hell are we doing? And then people wanted to come along on the journey. So uh, you've got to take risks. That's what I'm saying. You've got to open the doors and you've got to be re receptive to understand the world that we live in. The world, unfortunately, isn't about the 60, 70, 80-year-old people that have been involved and done it before. The new age is our kids coming through, your twins coming through and how they're going to consume life, which unfortunately for us, unless you live on a farm or you live in the mountains, is going to be online. That was the Championship Clubs podcast. Be sure to come back in a fortnight's time and follow us on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter. The Championship Clubs podcast is brought to you in association with media partner Novus Marketing Solutions. Check them out at novusmarketingsolutions.com.